0: Today, we talk about cybersecurity, how AI is impacting it, and how to get buy-in on cyber efforts, and how to delicately balance between policy and culture improvements. But most importantly, we talk about Clippy, the useless office assistant that was in the 90s that shaped like a paperclip on Microsoft Windows. We'll learn a little bit about that. But I'm joined by Andrew Wilder, who is a cybersecurity leader with more than 20 years of experience working at organizations such as Nestle and Brands. In addition to being a CISO, Andrew is a board member and adjunct professor at Washington University. Please welcome Andrew. Welcome to Evolving Industry, a no BS podcast about business leaders who are successfully weaving technology into their company's DNA to forge a better path forward. If you're looking to actually move the ball forward rather than spinning around in a tornado of buzzwords, you're in the right place. I'm your host. George Jakoszynski. Andrew, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hey, George, thanks for having me today.
0: So today we're going to talk cybersecurity, AI, people. But but I figured a good kicking off point would be, how do you justify to the executive team and to the board why you would invest in some of these initiatives? And I ask that selfishly because I'm often in a position where I'm trying to convince executives. And I literally heard a CEO say one time, everyone leaks data. I don't worry about it. Like, it doesn't even get the press anymore. It's just going to happen. You know, what can we do? Let's not bother. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, your your experiences in the trenches, you know, how do you get it done?
1: Yeah. So I I recently pitched an executive team to spend money on cybersecurity controls and had very similar questions, specifically from the CFO, like, what's the risk return on this? And I really see a, a CISO's job as a subject matter expert and to come in and say, we have risk X and there are three different ways that we can address that risk. There is a, we can just ignore that risk completely. We can spend a small amount of money and bring it down a little bit, or we can spend a reasonable amount of money and really reduce the risk. And it's really about what is the risk appetite of the business and what do they wanna do? And a lot of times they'll say like, you know, how would other organizations of our size do this? Is this kind of table stakes or gold standard? That kind of stuff. But in the end, I think the, the business is able to see the value in saying I'm a more cybersecurity mature organization. Imagine as an investor, if you have two companies that are for all intents and purposes equal, but one of them is really good at cybersecurity. Well, you can feel safer knowing that you're investing in that company. Or if you're doing business with two different companies and one of them is really good at cybersecurity and the other one's not, well, maybe you're more interested in doing business with one where you know your data is not gonna get leaked or there's a much better chance that things are gonna be more secure. So I think that's where a business starts to see the value of it um, when they can use it as a tangible advantage for them in terms of getting sales or investors or things like that.
0: Interesting. And curveball question for you. I know you've done a lot of M&A. The way you were talking about value, I'm curious, does cybersecurity maturity
1: factor into valuation
0: at all? Do you know?
1: So I would say in the past, definitely not. I think now it's starting to be more so. I was able to create, I've been doing M&A for more than 20 years and on the cybersecurity side. And the first half of that was really like, well, we've already bought this company, just go do something. And then after a while, they started to say like, hey, we're going to buy this company, your cybersecurity assessment will probably not have an impact on it, but we'd like to know how good or bad they are ahead of time. And then we start to do this thing where we we bring them in slowly in a secure way, right? So you do an external pen test on them from a third party, you start to deploy your security tools. Once you get a good handle on things and you've addressed the biggest rocks, then you can say, okay, now we can start to connect to them and do all the stuff that the business is dying to do. But it's a lot better place in the world now in terms of M&A and cybersecurity than it used to be.
0: <laughs> so you, you guys used to just be out like in the cold shadows as the M&A deal is going on, brought in to clean up the mess, and now you're getting into the room. That's nice.
1: You're like, guys, do, did you really want to buy this company? I mean, I understand from a business perspective, but from a cybersecurity perspective, it's a nightmare.
0: <laughs> I love it. We get involved in quite a few M&A. I'm always fascinated by which parts get integrated how quickly. And it seems that sales teams always seem to get integrated super quickly. It's surprising people that are incented by just getting results seem to all of a sudden get their act together really quickly. Do you find in them any world? I could imagine that the cybersecurity playbooks there could serve a little bit as a connective tissue and a glue to bring the organizations together a little bit.
1: Yeah, it does. And you know, a lot of times what I've got was a lot of pressure from the business saying, hey, how can we speed up this cybersecurity stuff? And that's when it- You know, it's important to remind them that, look, if we open the floodgates now and they have bad stuff that could come right into our uh, systems and could infect us. So, you know, it's important to let us do our job, do the due diligence, get things signed off, and then we can safely say, okay, now sales can connect and finance can connect and all those people can connect. So, yeah, there's a little back and forth. You have to be a good business influencer at that point to not just say, okay, let's let's go ahead and do it kind of thing.
0: They want their synergies and they want them now. <laughs> so, so on the speed front, um, you know, last time we chatted, we talked a little bit about AI in the cybersecurity world. And it, it comes from so, on the attack side, on the defense side. It's, it's a new vector. I'm curious some of what you're seeing out there right now from an AI and cybersecurity perspective.
1: Yeah. So, boy, that's a loaded question, George. So let's start. Let's first talk about the, the risks so if if you ask cybersecurity professionals today like what is your number one attack vector right how do people most often get in number one attack vector is phishing emails you get them i get them we get them all the time now one of the things that is fortunate about phishing emails right now is that a lot of times they have misspellings they have clear clues that tell you that this is probably something that's fishy the problem that's happening now is that fraudsters are using generative AI to generate not only well-crafted phishing emails, but unique phishing emails. Because if you think about it from a defense perspective, if I get a phishing email in my organization, I'm gonna search by the sender, by the subject line, by the attachment, by the link. Now, if I'm an attacker and I know that they're gonna do that, if I can craft every message individually, I'm gonna be that much more successful and that it's gonna make it that much uh, more difficult for the defense side. So that's one way they're doing it. And you can think about a very similar thing if you think about malware and ransomware and stuff like that. It's based, a lot of the detections are based on behavior and heuristics and hash values. Well, if you can create every piece of ransomware or malware to be completely unique, then you can get past a lot of those controls that we have today. So from a defense perspective, we need to be a lot smarter. But you also asked about, you know, what are the positive benefits of it? There are a lot of positive benefits of it, right? Like everybody's using it today. I think it was IBM talked about they're going to pause hiring any jobs that AI can do, which is an interesting interesting statement. They are, you know, trying to, trying to be forward IT-wise or tech-wise. Google also talked about the ways that they're using it with their Mandiant solution about threats and toil and talent and using it for different things so there's a lot of different use cases that we could talk about for using it on the positive side for sure
0: yeah and, and i want to put on my grumpy old man hat for a second which is when i hear ai i get so frustrated because it's applied in marketing terms to everything imaginable and you and i have been around the block long enough to know like most of it is, that's happening is just rule-based automation or machine learning or, or whatever it is yeah And it's not just Skynet battling Skynet out there. There's some, I think, more practical, pragmatic things that can help people do. Maybe it would be interesting to explore, because our audience, they don't all know cybersecurity, but like on a cybersecurity team, how is AI making their lives easier? Because I find AI in general, if you can just free up time from your existing team anywhere in the organization, you start to see some great benefits. It doesn't need to be some crazy Skynet thing. So I'm curious what's happening.
1: So one of the things that I would implement with my teams in the past, and it was actually uh, like an annual objective that people get bonused on, we did this thing called SSAOE, which is an acronym that is Simplify, Standardize, Automate, Offshore, and Eliminate. So as much as possible, you want to always be moving down low-value tasks so that the team can do higher-value tasks. So there's gonna be new things. Next year, there's gonna be something else. Two, three, five years from now, everything's gonna continue to change. So as much as you can, you wanna push down those low value tasks. So you think about using generative AI to automate routine tasks. People who work on a SOC or a security operations center doing an investigation, they may have to get into three or four different systems. They may have to put that all into a spreadsheet and massage the data to get down to the details of what they really wanna get. Well, if you're smart enough, you can help generative AI to do that stuff for you and do it for you regularly. So you start getting, okay, here's exactly what I wanted instead of having to kind of sort through all this data to get to the, the goal that you're looking for. So that's one, I think very good use case for it.
0: I love that framework. I wanna poke into that a little bit because we always talk in, in our organization about elevate and delegate your role. But I threw out a challenge for our team to look for as many opportunities to leverage AI to you know free up their time. And to be honest, it's a little bit crickets because everyone's just so darn busy with their day jobs. But if you start incenting people off of it, I could see where that would move the lever a little bit. Can you help me understand a little bit? Like, what is that incentive framework? What is that? Like, I understand those pillars that you have, but then how do you structure that?
1: So what you would have to do is on like a mid-year review or a quarterly review or end of year review, you'd have to talk about what are the things that I've done that fit into that SSAOE framework. Right. So I have I've eliminated this low value task that we used to have to do or I've automated this task where it used to take, you know, three or four people a couple hours a week. It now takes one person, 15 minutes to run this automation. Um, So we were always trying to find ways to eliminate things and reduce things so that we'd have more time to learn and more time to do additional tasks. And you're right. If you just tell people, yeah, go do this. Yeah, that sounds great. I got a lot of other stuff to do. But if you say, if you tie money to things, people are generally very interested in doing it. Like, you know, a part of your end of your bonus or your salary increase for next year could be based on how successful you were at doing these things. So if you did it, if you did one, well, that's probably not very good. But if you did five or six of them, well, hey, that's that's really doing a good job. and Not only helping you, but helping the rest of your team and and hopefully helping the entire organization that you work for, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And as much as my grumpy old man perspective on the marketing label of AI, I, I have found that there are real dollars at the board level and the executive level. They're in an AI bucket. And if you can kind of tie that to what you're doing, you can unlock those. I mean, have you had those experiences in, in your
1: line of work? Yeah, no, we definitely have. And it's important to to be able to tie back to those to those buckets like you talked about, those kind of initiatives, and say, here's ways that we are doing that, here's ways that we are leveraging it. I wouldn't want to get onto your grumpy old man hat and try and say we're doing AI for things that we're not, but it's also a great way to incentivize people. Like, look, here's, if you want to do a project, here's a way that we can do it leveraging AI and we can tap into these additional funds or incentives or whatever to to move those things forward. Mm.
0: talking about mapping back to the organizational goals, I find every executive I talk to most of them have challenges doing that for whatever reason you know whether it's unlocking new data capabilities or e-commerce or modernization what you know being able to map that back to the the corporate goals is challenging for some reason and I'm I'm curious if you run into that with cybersecurity efforts and how you how do you align those
1: Yeah so I worked for Nestle for about 18 years and one of the things that we did starting in 2012 was a lean initiative So Lean, you've probably heard of it like Six Sigma, things that were developed in Toyota and very factory related and things like that, always about making continuous improvements, small incremental improvements all the time. But one of the other things about Lean, if you think about it from a leadership perspective or an organizational perspective, is the cascading of organizational goals. So if you think about the CEO's goals or the executive team's goals or the board's goals, and then, when that gets to the next level, you have a similar set of goals, but that are tailored or flavored towards your line of the business and how you're supporting those things. And then that continues to cascade throughout the organization. And it's really a powerful thing when you think about someone on the factory line is doing something to support a goal that is the factory manager's goal, that is the country manager's goal, that is the regional manager's or the head of the organization's goal. And you can see that kind of cascading up. So I agree with you that there's some difficulty there. Sometimes you need to be pretty creative about how you do that supportive goals, but I think there is a good way to do it if you do that cascading process well.
0: Makes sense. I've seen plenty of CEOs head explode when we go in to evaluate part of the organization and you can't draw a line between the initiatives to any, like any of the five corporate goals. It's uh, quite a fun moment. Um, so, so then moving on into um, people. People are a big part of this. We talk about incenting them. There's obviously the risk. You know, there's a lot of stories out there. where People are pasting stuff into ChatGPT GPT that they shouldn't. But h- how do we improve the people aspect of cybersecurity?
1: So let's first start with the generative AI piece because I think there's a good use case for that. But we can also talk about the people aspect of cybersecurity, which is a huge piece of cybersecurity for sure. Um, so if if I talk to my peers about this, there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. Um, one way is people trying to block it. Um, now, I don't think that's reasonable. I think we've kind of opened Pandora's box here. And even if you try and block you know, the big ones, people are still gonna find other ways to get generative AI that they want. So to me, it's more about teaching people how to use it safely than trying to block them. I, I don't think that's a, and you know maybe you have really good reasons for it. Maybe you're in the government or you have people in R&D that are working with confidential stuff all the time. Maybe there's some reasons for some businesses to do it, but it seems like a difficult road to go down. The second part is looking at policies, right? So, you probably already have some kind of a cloud policy or a SaaS policy or something like that. So, saying, look, this is another SaaS solution. This is another cloud solution. You wouldn't go to Pastebin and put our corporate secrets out there. Don't do the same thing in generative AI just because it might be able to give you more information. One of the interesting things that I've seen are these kind of security teachable moments. So, you go into whatever generative AI tool and something, some kind of browser plugin or something pops up and says, hey, George, I noticed that you're on this Gen AI site. Just want to remind you of the corporate policies about that. And we're able to track what you're doing here. So make sure you don't put anything confidential in there because that's not allowed and we don't do that. And so to me, that's a very powerful link between people and the policy and getting them to see that one thing i've done before with like a, a dlp tool is we just had a pop-up message that said hey i noticed that you're trying to copy you know 10 gigs of files to a thumb drive what's your business reason for doing this and when people start to see that like hmm maybe i shouldn't do this because they know that i'm doing this if especially if they're doing it for for the wrong reasons like an insider thread or something so those kind of those kind of things, those kind of messages can really help people to understand. And it's a powerful learn in the moment thing. You know, If you think about cybersecurity awareness training that's common today, it's something that you get once a year and you click through it as fast as you possibly can to say, yay, I'm done, I did my cybersecurity training. Maybe you take the quiz at the end and hopefully you pass. But this kind of learning in the moment thing of, hey, you're doing a risky behavior and here's, here's the policies or the reasons not to do that. I think that's a pretty powerful way. And It goes back to your original question about how do we help people? It's not about a stick, it's about a carrot, right? Like I think the best way for people to understand cybersecurity and take it home with them is to say, look, you're a professional, you're intelligent, you know what you're doing, but what about your children? What about your friends who are not in technology? What about your parents or your grandparents or your aunts and uncles? Go take this information home and give it to them. Because if if they get a phishing link, maybe they don't know all the same stuff that you do. And when people see that in terms of protecting their family and friends, that becomes a very powerful tool as well, that kind of emotional connection to it.
0: Yeah, that taps into the good human stuff. I'm curious, though, how do you avoid that from feeling like the clippy overlord that's watching everything that you do?
1: Well, you know, there's positive and negative parts of clippy. I love Clippy and I like the web plugin that's Clippy-esque that says, hey, I see you're trying to do this. There is a negative aspect to it because and even as the Gen AI stuff started coming out and COVID and work from home and all of that, there's a lot of stuff about people doing tracking and you know, seeing what you're doing and all of that stuff. I, I think if you have a strong policy that says, look, your corporate computer or the work that you're doing there can always be monitored and logged, so you should be aware of that. It's not like there's people in this secret dark room who are back there looking and reading all your emails or whatever, but in a case of a forensics investigation for an incident, they're probably gonna have to go back and look at the stuff that happened on that computer or that device or that server or whatever. So we need to have all of that kind of logging and monitoring in place. Um, I don't think that we should be monitoring people and what they do. I think that's more of a leadership problem than a technology problem to solve. But, you know, different organizations have chosen to do different things. And um, that's up to them, I guess.
0: Yeah. And for the youngsters out there, Clippy was an animated little paperclip on Windows that anytime you were trying to do something, it would ask you if if it could help. And it wasn't always that useful back in the day, but maybe it was ahead of its time, right? Because maybe you get... yeah. Maybe get around the overlord fears with if it's truly helpful. Like I I mean, knowledge management within organizations is is rife for disruption with, with something like AI. And then as everything's changing, like ChatGPT is one flavor of a million flavors that are on their way. If your enterprise kind of clippy helper can just turn that a little bit into a black box while also making sure that you don't poke yourself in the eye, you know, maybe maybe it becomes a bit more accepted, right?
1: Exactly. And it's about Making sure that those things are truly helpful, like you said, making sure that people really want to use it and it really adds value for you. Like there's a use case that I think about for generative AI every single day, which is somebody emails me and says, "What's your availability for the next two weeks?" And so I go into my calendar and then I type out an email that says this. Now you can use things like Calendly or whatever to, but you know maybe you have parts of your calendar that have blocked off that maybe for a conversation with George, you're going to kind of open it up. So, Boy, it, it would be cool if Clippy popped up and said, "Hey, I can respond to this for you and give give people your availability for the next two weeks." That would be easy for me to do. uh Oh,
0: executive assistants across the globe are are about to be out of a job. <laughs> as long as it would make me not book something over school drop off or pick up, that would be nice. That it would, yeah. Uh, navigating the the personal and work calendars is always a challenge. So let's talk. We're big believers that, yes, while you need policy for cybersecurity, it's much more cultural cultural solve. But you need both. How do you find the balance between the two, between policy and people and culture?
1: Yeah. So listen, you got to have a good policy. It's got to be up to date. You got to refresh it normally. You got to communicate it to people regularly. It can't be a 60 page document. It's got to be and all legal jargon. It's gotta be something that people can understand. It can be translated and all that kind of stuff. There was a quote that the CEO of Nestle UK gave us one time. And he said, the sense of urgency is very hard to cascade. So think about this from a large organization and the topic of cybersecurity. So imagine you have a CEO and he says to his executive team, hey, this cybersecurity stuff is really important. Make sure that your teams do it. Okay, so that message gets to those people. And they're like, yeah, cybersecurity is really important. Now, what are the, what is the chances that all of those executive leaders go back to their teams and say, hey, by the way, when I was talking to the CEO, he reminded me that this cybersecurity thing is really important. Okay, maybe that's going to happen. But then what's the chances that that next level, if we're playing the telephone game here, that that next level goes to their you know, directors or managers and says, hey, by the way, remember that cybersecurity is really important. That message gets lost at some point. So what you have is you have at the top of the organization people understanding, you know, hey, there's these SEC rules that are out there. This is really important stuff. Let's make sure that we're doing this. And maybe on the IT team or the cybersecurity team, people know that it's important. But when you get out to the general population of the rest of the organization, a lot of people are not hip to it. So I think the best way to address this is creating strategic relationships in each of those business units, having cybersecurity champions in those areas, people who understand, people who know about the policy, hey, there's somebody in your area, You're your location, or your business unit, or whatever that you can talk to, if you want to know about cybersecurity, somebody you can call first or ask questions. That sort of implanting agents with that throughout the organization, I think that's a really good way to do it. So, man,
0: you're speaking right to my soul and raising my blood pressure because as someone who leads a company, you know, I can never get my urgency down throughout the whole company. We're not even that large, and it's just the game of telephone is is real. And you can't, you know, we always say you can't pay someone to give a insert four letter word here. And it's a challenge. But you know, I I think getting getting everyone educated on the what's at stake, I think can help too. you know, we were talking earlier, not everyone might know this, but some executives of organizations are being personally held liable for data leaks. And that's something that follows you to your next organizations as well, depending on what your role is. And I don't I don't know what you and see kind of evolving in that, that realm of responsibility. I'm curious what you see.
1: So, you know, executives and boards are responsible for addressing risk within their organizations. And with this new SEC rule that came out recently, it's clear that the SEC is saying, hey, by the way, you're supposed to address risk in your organization, but cybersecurity is a very important risk that you really need to pay attention to. So I think what's happening now is instead of it being an IT problem or a tech problem or a CISO problem, it's starting to be a company problem or an everybody problem, and people are starting to be held accountable for it. You know, if you look at some of these recent cases, who is being held accountable for these things? Is it always a CISO that's going to take the blame and be the scapegoat for these problems that happen? So you got to make sure that you're covered with uh, the right type of insurance, like DNO insurance, in your organization as a CISO. We got to make sure that the decisions that are made are well documented so that everybody takes responsibility for those things. So that goes back to the thing we talked about before about subject matter expert, risk appetite, here's the different things that we can do, here's my recommendation of what we do and then let the business make the decision, but make sure that that's well documented because that way all the people involved in the decision are held accountable for that decision instead of one person being the the fall guy if you will for for making a bad cybersecurity decision.
0: Yeah. You know, we find ourselves in an interesting position in that one of our capabilities is we do cybersecurity advising, but then another is, is essentially helping our clients get more out of their data. And I just hosted a roundtable recently with some well-known brands, pretty much all of them on average are rating themselves like a letter grade of a C on their ability to get the value out of the data. And so I'm sitting there like, okay, so you have this data that, you know, everyone was saying data is the new oil and everyone's just collecting more and more data, but you're not even getting the value out of it. While at the same time, it feels like it's becoming more and more of a liability that you have within your organization. And I was trying to figure out if there's any interesting frameworks or rules of thumb for, hey, if you have X amount of data or across this many different things, it's like, this much more of a liability
1: if you use quantitative risk assessment methods and if you look at the fines like like gdpr or ccpa or some of these other data privacy regulations it makes it very easy to translate the amount of data and the number of records into financial risk so you can say look we've got a million customer records it's a it's a thousand dollars per per record is the maximum fine we're going to have we could have up to a billion dollar fine if these records get breached and here's the amount of cybersecurity spend we'd need to to protect them or protect them better than we are right now and that's actually a very nice way to do and you know there's a whole conversation about qualitative versus quantitative risk assessment methods you can go to your board and show them the little pictures with the red and yellow and orange uh, blocks on there but it's much more powerful to say where we have this much dollar amount risk exposure, implementing this much of a control that costs this much money can lower it by this dollar amount. It's still not an exact science. It's all based on actuarial tables and estimates and stuff like that. But listen, that's how we do insurance today, right? I mean, insurance is not an exact science either. It's all based on estimates and Monte Carlo uh, uh, math schemes and stuff like that. So it's a, using that same kind of methodology to think about cyber risk.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because because we're always working with our clients, they're trying to find the budget to, to create more data capabilities. And, and maybe we can light an extra fire under everyone's butts to be like, hey, it's, there's not just the ROI on this new data capability, but there's this much risk tied to this. So you better be doing something with it. Right. And just get, get you know, cut out the nonsense and get it done. Right. Um, interesting. Well, Andrew, I I really enjoyed this conversation. I always like to finish with a fun question, which is throughout your career, across personal work, your life, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: So I think the best advice I ever received is that no one is going to care more about your career than you do. So if you're not doing a development plan for yourself, if you're not educating yourself, continuously learning reading books getting certifications going back to school if you're not doing that stuff nobody's going to do it for you now you might have a manager or a leader or whatever who's nice and helps you in that area but the number one person who's going to care about your career is you
0: that's great advice i love that i I luckily got that early on as well that's fantastic well andrew thank you so much i really enjoyed this
1: thank you george have a good one cheers
0: Thanks for listening to Evolving Industry. For more, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and pretty please, drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're watching or listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and smash the bell button for notifications. If you know someone who's pushing the limits to evolve their business, reach out to the show at evolvingindustry.com or reach out to me, George Zagosinski on LinkedIn. I love speaking with people getting the hard work done. The business environment's always changing, and you're either keeping up or going extinct. We'll catch you next time, and until then, keep evolving.